Hey everybody, welcome in to episode 3 of the I Want to Know podcast. I am your host, Greg Jones. I'm the guy leading you down this magical mystery tour of audio knowledge. I want to thank you guys first and foremost for listening to the show so far. I have to thank you guys for all the fantastic feedback I've received from episode 2. That, of course, was with the Jonestown survivor, Laura Johnston Cole. And thanks to that episode, I've gotten a lot of new listeners as well. So thank you, everyone that is telling a friend and telling some family members to listen to the show. I really appreciate the help. We have no advertising budget. Our only advertising is you guys. So I'll keep working on putting out a good product, and you'll keep telling all your friends how cool it is. And hopefully, it'll all work out for everyone. Anyways, today's show is with a very interesting person. My guest today is Stanley Swan. He is a new author, wrote a book. I'll tell you about that in just a second. But first, I'll tell you guys, if you're going to buy his book or anybody else's book that you've heard on this show, make sure you click on the Amazon banner right there at the bottom of the homepage of IWantToKnowShow.com. It will not cost you anything extra. It just kicks a couple of percentage points back this direction. Helps keep the show free for you and your friends and everyone else you're telling it about. Also, don't forget to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash I want to know show. Tweet with us at I want to know show. And of course, if you need to send any emails, it's I want to know pod at gmail.com. There's also a little contact form on the website. So let me tell you about my guest today. I have joining me on the show, Stanley Swan. He is an author of a new book that I think you guys are going to enjoy. He grew up in radio back in the day when radio was lucrative and popular and decided one day that he needed to follow his calling and head back to school. But he didn't just go to any college. He went to mortuary school. That's right. He became a professional undertaker. He's got all kinds of sad, funny, uplifting stories that he has written down in his new book, Undertakings of an Undertaker, True Stories of Being Laid to Rest. So joining me right now is Stanley Swan. Stanley, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Greg, it's a great, great opportunity to be uh, be on your program with you today, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to talk with you and you or your listeners about uh, about the undertaking business. Uh, a lot of people don't know a lot about it, and uh, your show, uh, I want to know, might be a good place to answer <laughs> some questions about that business. Hopefully, so. Uh, I actually have I had some listeners write in with some questions. I have my own questions, so hopefully between Myself and the listeners, we can we can get some interesting info across. Sounds good, Greg. Awesome. Um, so let's start out. You were actually a broadcaster before all this, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, brought up in the, in the, the southern tier of New York State, and right on the New York Pennsylvania border on a dairy farm, and um, uh, actually got out of college and. Uh, uh, did an associate's degree in in agriculture, and then went into radio and spent uh, about a dozen years uh, on the air in uh, a number of radio stations around New York State. That was in the day, Greg, where we actually had vinyl. We actually played forty fives <laughs> and albums. <laughs> Back when you would post songs. Yeah, that was that was a that was a fun time. Yeah. you know, people would call in and request, and you'd see if you had that forty five available, and <laughs> and you play it and. Uh, so yeah, I spent a dozen years in in the radio business and a lot of fun. But um, I was kind of knew that uh, I kind of knew when I was a kid that I might be in the funeral business eventually. I had a a great uncle who was my would have been my grandmother's brother who was who was an undertaker at the turn of the century in the town where I lived. So 
maybe it was just in the bloodline and it skipped a generation before it caught up to me. Not sure. So you have this uh, this career in radio, and you yep. you kind of knew as a kid this that uh, the undertaking thing was was cool or or fun or seemed interesting. Yeah. What snapped one day? What changed? Where you went? You know what? Uh, enough of this. Let's go deal with the dead people. Well, uh, I've always thought, and uh, it's my firm belief that I, I think everyone is kind of born to do a certain thing. I think uh, whether you're a religious person or not. I think uh, everybody is is placed here or born here to do a certain thing. And I think if you maybe stray from what you originally planned to, to have done for yourself, that maybe you get pulled back to that. And I think that's what happened to myself. I um, really enjoyed the broadcasting and had a lot of fun with it. I was moving around a little bit too much, but that's what you do when you're in broadcasting. You go to the better job. But at the same time, I kept kind of getting that tap on the shoulder and that calling that says, Stan, this isn't really what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and as the years went by, that, that calling just became a little bit stronger. And uh, so at age 31, I was back in college in mortuary school in Syracuse, New York. And uh, the oldest kid in the class, as I joke, because <laughs> all the other kids in the class, Greg, were probably 18. 19-year-old, and here I am, 31, <laughs> back in college. So um, that that's how that transition happened. And, um, and I'm glad that it did, because I've spent almost 35 years in the business since then, and um, have enjoyed it a great deal. Um, it's uh, physically and mentally uh, challenging to be in the funeral business. I bet. But um, the, the overall... Um, satisfaction uh, of helping people who've lost someone in their family, whether it's from a natural death or from a trauma injury or an airplane accident or anything along those lines. When you can help people get through that, that, that death scene and that, that first week of not even knowing who their name is, I mean, death is a, is a great equalizer in our society, and it's a, it's a mm-hmm. difficult thing for most people to, to face. So it's a, a very, very rewarding industry to be in, personally. For me, it has been. You know, it's interesting, going back to the college thing, you say you're the old, you, know, you were the oldest one in the class, and that's funny and all, but at the same time, when I think about it, I don't know anybody, or didn't know anybody when I was 18 and 19 that said, hey, I want to go be an undertaker. <laughs> so I'm actually, as surprised as I am, uh, you know, that you're... Or as not surprising as that you're the oldest one, it's kind of surprising at the same time. Yeah, I've had that reaction from a couple of other people I've done interviews with around the country. They go, wow, how many people just step up and say, gee, I think I'm going to be an undertaker today. (laughs) They think automatically, well, you must be a little bit weird if you want to be around (laughs) dead people. And uh, so people in the funeral business get that a lot. I guess my, my, uh, my comeback to that is the people that I do talk to about the the funeral businesses, and I would probably ask you the same thing. Have you ever met a funeral director? Do you know a funeral director? And most people say, gee, no, I've I've never had the opportunity to, to meet a funeral director. And, and then they say, who'd want to be, meet a funeral director? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm from the old school, and I always say, um, it's better to know one ahead of time than to wait until you have a tragedy in your family to actually have to meet a funeral director. I'm, sure. I'm a great believer in 
and people should know ahead of time what they want for themselves and uh, just drive into a funeral home someday, a parking lot, knock on the door and say, hey, I just want to meet, I want to talk to you. And, and people are asking more questions about the funeral business today than than they did a few years ago. A few decades ago, it was kind of rather closed business, Greg. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, it was kind of a quiet business. People didn't talk a lot about the funeral business. And and that started opening up in the 70s, and then the 80s came on, and more information age in the 90s, and now in the high-tech world of the 21st century. People people want information, and they want answers, and, and that's been good for the funeral business. Um, so there's never really been any secrets in the funeral business. It's just been... I think people have been hesitant to ask questions about the funeral business. As you watch all those those late night TV movies with people coming out of caskets and spooky funeral homes, and that's where our business has always been, kind of in, the, right. in that in that realm of the of the B grade movies. And the new funeral directors around the country are trying to come out of that, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I would imagine that uh, having that on your to do list, you know, go to the store, buy milk. Oh, by the way, go <laughs> hang out and talk to. To a funeral director, that just yeah, seems yeah. a little odd to some people. Yeah, yeah, it does. And uh, but for people who 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 actually do that and, and know a funeral director, either from from going to a Lions Club or a Rotary Club with one, or meeting one from somewhere, they say, you know, that that that's that's not as strange as I thought it was. He just he or she seems like kind of a normal person. It's just what they do is take care of dead people. Speaking of taking care of dead people, what I mean is that a a very depressing thing to be around dead people all the time. It's it's really not. I it never has been for me, Greg. And I I think most funeral directors, male or female today, would would uh, kind of say the same thing. Um, a dead human body is just that. I mean, it's a dead human body on a on a on a table, and uh, there is there is no persona there. There's no spirit there. There's nothing, and it's just. Um, so I've never been really um, bothered by being around people who've passed away, you know, um, with the abilities that funerals directors learn in school to do good embalming and uh, to do good cosmetology work and to make a person look really good if their family wants to see them before they're cremated or before they're buried. There's a huge amount of satisfaction there to be able to have those skills. Interesting. So there's no need to kind of go home and, and, you know, balance out by something extremely happy or not dead? No, no. Uh, the only times that I've, and it is, a, it is a, as I said on, on the onset, it is a, it's a mentally and physically challenging job, but uh, both mentally and physically. But when you yeah. have really difficult cases, and I think any any funeral director would would agree with me when it, you have a, a young person that passes away. If you have to take care of a newborn baby, or a two year old, or a seven year old, or a ten year old, anybody that dies of tragic circumstances, mm -hmm. it, it does take a toll on you. And we uh, we cry right along. I've cried along with families over the years during services. We're not we're not a, we're not cold immune people to those things <laughs> to those feelings and. Uh, you do get involved with people, um, but the personal satisfaction that comes back is a hundred times what you put into it. 
and um, it's been very rewarding. To me. And, and I still talk to people. I still have families that I talk to that I served 25, 30 years ago. Wow. Under really difficult situations. And um, you do a good job with four people. They become your friends. And um, they they feel that they can talk to you even down the road about their death and their family. And uh, and that's, that's a good feeling to know that you're still there for people if they need to talk. Yeah. And, and that basically answered a question I had from a listener. They wanted to know, if is it harder for you to grieve uh, at some sort of loss because you're around death all, all the time? Um, uh, boy, that's a hard question, too. Um, I buried both of my parents, uh, not myself, my, my, my funeral home, but, you know, both of my parents have died within the last uh, 15, 13, 14, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't, it was not easier for me to be there with them because I was in the funeral business. Uh, I totally... Uh, uh, walked away from the funeral business uh, when my parents passed away, and it was like it was brand new for me. Uh, yeah, I uh, the grieving process was not easier for me because I was in the business. If anything, maybe it was a little harder because I knew what was involved in in preparing them and getting them ready to view and to bury. And it's very difficult to bury someone in your family, and, and most families only have a death. About every twenty to twenty-five years, that's the norm. Okay. So most families don't don't have a death very often in their family. Yeah, it's not something you want to get used to. No, and, and on the flip side of that, Craig, uh, I've had families that I've served who've had three or four or five deaths within a same number of years. Wow, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that's really tough because they'd come in to make arrangements and say, gee, Stan, this is the third time we've got together in the last five years and we can't, we got to stop this because it's very difficult for them. Um, and, and every family reacts differently to a death. You know, some people come in and um, to make arrangements and uh, uh, they they tell jokes. They uh, they like a little levity because it, it, it lessens their 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 ability to actually maybe cope with with the loss that they're having. A lot of people, uh, they needed that escape mechanism. You know, they mm-hmm. need to be able to, to joke around a little bit if they can and um, and kind of make, not light of the death, but try to smile sure. yeah. uh, during the whole situation because it's difficult. Death is a difficult thing for people to, uh, to, to deal with. And so everybody grieves differently. You know, and uh, some people have pathological grieving uh, that goes on for years and years and years, and they they never get over a death in the family. And uh, usually, if 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 a family's not getting working through a death within a few months or twelve months, they they really need to uh, to seek some professional help. There are good people out there to talk to. Have you had any? Um interesting cases of people grieving as in, you know, has somebody brought up a, a, a psychic that communicates with the afterlife or anything like that? Uh, no, I, uh, <laughs> I, the, it, the book itself that I wrote has probably, well, there are 28 chapters, 28 stories in the book. And, uh, there are several that are, are, are rather light. It's not a heavy book at all. There's a, it's, it's an interesting, mix of emotions from fun from funny to sad to uh 
to a tragedy. Uh, so it, for people who read the book, I, I think they'll, they'll, they'll get a sense of what funeral directors do. Uh, never had a psychic come in for a funeral. Um, have had people bring their animals in, dogs, cats, to say goodbye to the deceased. Sure. Um, uh, that's not that's that's kind of a norm today. Um, people today uh, will bring in things to place with the person in the casket if the person's going to be buried. And uh, I have a list. I can run through it. Would you like to hear some of the things that I've buried with people? Oh, that'd be great. Over the years, <laughs> I'll run down through this, and then you can ask me about any of these in specifics. But sure. I've made a list of these are quite interesting. These are, you know, this started back with the Egyptians, Greg, way back when. Yeah, they would bury like gold and other yeah, things, right? They would bury uh, before you were put in an Egyptian tomb. If you were of of notable family. Uh, you would be. They would bring things to send you into the afterlife. All kinds of gold and jewelry and pottery and furniture and foodstuffs and and all those things. And so that continues two thousand years later because people are still doing those kinds of things. So here's here's some of the things that I have either buried in a casket with a person or put with an urn with a person's cremains, uh, cremated remains. They call cremains. Okay. Um, so if you hear me refer to that as we talk, that's cremated remains are called cremains in our business. So, okay. And sometimes if they're put in an urn for burial, people will want to put things with the urn when it's buried. So here are some of the things we've, over the years, have maybe placed with people. Um, coins in a pocket to cover the first bed of the track. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Six-pack of beer. Sure. A bottle of scotch. Okay. Uh, two six packs of beer. Even better. They figure he may figure it's warm where he's going. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, here's an interesting one: a hockey stick. Okay. A check for two hundred and fifty dollars. This friend owed him money. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> a fork in the lady's hand. Did you ever hear that story? No. I'll tell you this. Okay. It's a quick story. Um, a fork in the lady's hand, and at the time. The lady passed away, and this has happened a few times. I've only had it a couple of times, but a family member would ask the minister, why is that lady in the casket have a fork in her hand? And the minister would say something to the, to the, along this line, well, let's, Lucille always enjoyed going to church suppers. And she always, when they finished clearing the table, getting ready for dessert, the waitress would always say, keep your fork because the best is yet to come. Okay. Meaning dessert. Yeah. That makes more and sense. And so, so the idea of putting a fork in a lady's hand in the casket was the best is yet to come. So after death, death is finished my life, but the best is yet to come. I thought that's cute. I like that because my initial thought, and this is possibly a little dark, was, well, she's done, stick a fork in it. <laughs> so that's the story behind that. And then let's see, we've oh, lots of people bring in next of kin pictures. Sure. Uh, fishing pole. Okay. Uh, crucifixes. Mm-hmm. Uh, bowling pin. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, deck of cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of flasks I've buried over the years. Nice. Uh, candy bars. Sure. 
Uh, here's an interesting one, the bowling ball. Oh. <laughs> All right, sure, why not? Um, clean socks. I'm not sure what the reason <laughs> was that for. Uh, a highway map. I thought that was always interesting. Yeah, was there uh, a story behind that one? No, I don't. I, I never really asked uh, the family what the highway map was before, if he was lost a lot or what. I'm not sure. Uh, books and Bibles are natural. Mm-hmm. A flashlight, records and tapes. Okay. A church key. You know what a church key is? A lot of the younger people aren't familiar with the term church key. I don't think so. A church key uh, is the old bottle opener. It's a uh, piece of steel about four inches long, and on one end it's got the pointed end where you used to have to open a can of beer or pop. Okay. And on the other end would be like the loop that you would wrap around a plop, a, a top off of a wine bottle. And they, they used to call that a church key. Okay. Uh, let's see, dominoes. Sure. Uh, pet cremates. People would bring in their pet that had passed away, oh. and they would have the pet cremated and then place the cremains in the casket. Interesting. Uh, fortune cookies. Oh, okay. Lots of toys, Hot Wheels, die cast, stuffed animals, <laughs> uh, jewelry. Uh, extra shoe strings, uh, a Rubik's cube. Figure they've got a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> Apparently, so. figured that one out. A string puppet. I thought that was quite interesting. A mirror. I don't know. A mirror would have been an interesting thing for to send to someone. Mm-hmm. Star Wars lightsaber. Oh, of course. Assuming he'll meet Darth Vader somewhere. Got to fight the dark side. Yep. And a pen and note paper. So that's just a list of some of the things in three decades that I've put with people. That's a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought so, too. Actually, probably could write a second book on on some of those. Yeah, but, that, um, that'd be a fun list to go through and, and, you know, contact some of those families. Hey, why did you bury the roadmap with this guy? <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, so when you have people come through a funeral home to do a viewing of someone that's passed away or just to talk with a family, immediate family that stands usually near the casket, you're apt to have people who actually bring in things. And they would say to, if they were a close friend, and they would say to a family member, could I, could I leave a note with George? And they say, certainly. And the person would just go over and, you know, put the note in the casket with the person. A lot of people leave notes. A lot of people leave notes or envelopes with, with deceased people. Um, maybe it's a last message um, uh, ho- and asking for forgiveness of something. Who, who knows? You know, you don't really know right. what people are writing. And I've never looked at any of those things. Those are personal. And even if it's not in an envelope... Before I closed the casket, I would tuck things in around the body, but I would never read anything that wasn't addressed to me. Those were personal items, and they were meant for that person. So I really never knew what was in a lot of those things. But I'm sure there were some interesting things written. There could be some good reads in there. I'm sure there could be, Greg. (laughs) I'm sure there could be. Um, Let me ask you this. Do you have any kids? Uh, I do not. None. Oh, okay. I've got my, my wife uh, and I of 30 years. We, she has two grown sons, uh, but neither were interested in the funeral business, and each went out and did their own thing. So no one's carrying on my tradition of my work. So That's what I yep. wanted to find out, if anybody would be bringing yep. on that, uh, that tradition. Okay. 
No, eventually I'll be I'll be someone's customer here before who knew you, you never know when. <laughs> and you'll we know, never know how long we're going to be here, right? right? You'll know exactly what they'll be doing to you. Yes, I do. I know exactly what it's going to be from start to finish. So. <laughs> that, that's right. Uh, what kind of certifications and degrees do you need to be an undertaker? In most states now, Greg, um, most states are requiring at least, uh, you know, the high school uh, an associate's degree, two years. And in New York State, uh, they require the associates and then a year or a year and a half of mortuary college. So most, most people who want to go into the funeral business, get out of high school, go to a, a college, get your bachelor's in, in funeral service. And, um, and then in New York State, and in most states now, you have a, a year residency, they call it, that you have to go out and work with another funeral home. And they kind of supervise what you're doing during your your residency and then do the paperwork for you. And then after that, you become licensed in that wow, I respective even, state. I didn't even realize that there was a mortuary college. Yep. There are several mortuary colleges around the country. You can go on and Google it. And uh, one of the older ones in the country where I went, Simmons School of Mortuary Science in Syracuse, they were in business for probably 100 years. They're now gone within the last year or two. So, But there are, are a few in New York State, and there are several around the country. Uh, Pittsburgh has a pretty big mortuary science program. Hmm. And uh, you can Google it for people who are interested in mortuary science and uh, go and get your degree and then uh, do your residency and take your exams, and all of a sudden you're, you're at work. Not to turn things too dark. For a second, but in in high school, I had a friend who who killed himself and he shot himself in the head. Yep. And at the viewing, you you couldn't see anything. How, how do you guys do that? Well, it requires some some very interesting what they call post death surgery. And um, basically, when we have a person who has got who has trauma to the body, whether it's a car accident, a gunshot wound. Uh, anything along that line, after the medical examiner is done with that body, and most bodies in accidents now have to go to a medical examiner's office for autopsy. After the autopsy is completed, they would call the funeral director that's been selected by the family, and the funeral director would go pick up the body, bring it back to their funeral home, do the embalming if the family wants a viewing, and then they start after the actual arterial work is done to embalm the, the extremities and the abdomen and the thoracic cavities and the head, after that arterial work is done, then they would start the what they call restoration work, restorative artwork. And that can be very extensive and take sometimes a half a day, sometimes a day or two that you would work on putting a person's cranial back to head, their head back together, um, involves a lot of, um, uh, uh, there's a lot of just like plaster cast materials that are made out there for funeral homes now to help them shape a head hmm. to uh, reconstruct facial features like a nose, eyes, ears, lips. And um, you can work uh, a long time doing that. And, um, Hopefully, try to bring that person back to a to a state where a family can at least maybe have a viewing. It's not always possible. So I've had a lot of trauma deaths over the years that 
were just not, they were impossible to fix. Sure, I'd imagine. And in that case, uh, what we would do, and I can remember a couple of specific times where family wanted to come in and actually not see the person's head. Um, so we would have uh, like an afghan or blanket covering, you know, covering the facial features, and the person would come in and, and maybe just see or be able to touch the hand, and they would recognize the hand of the person naturally. Sure. And that was important for them because they could say, yeah, this is my son or this is my daughter. And even though they couldn't see the facial features, but they could they could hold the person's hand and they knew that that was important for them. But those are difficult cases. And uh, funeral directors can work hours and sometimes days trying to reconstruct a person to satisfaction for a family. And that's, that's a huge, huge amount of skill involved and um, very time-consuming. Yeah, it sounds a bit like plastic surgery. Yeah, it, it really is. It, it's, it's post-death derma surgery and um, um, and fouls step by step by step. And it can be very time-consuming, but very rewarding if you can, if you can give a person back to a family. That's, that's what it's all about. Yeah, I, I imagine. Um, on the cover of your book, Undertakings of an Undertaker, you, yep, yep. you have uh, three bottles on the picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, that picture, uh, the pictures that are in the book uh, are, are not selfies. I, I took the pictures with a 35 millimeter some years ago, most of them. And uh, the picture on the front of the book has three embalming bottles that are circa 1940s, 19, well, 1950s. And uh, one of the last interviews I did on the air with a fella, he, he looked at the book and he said, Stan, he said, uh, those look like liquor bottles to me. Yeah, they do. <laughs> but he says, the closer that I look at them, this is blood solvent and uh, arterial fluid. He says, these are embalming bottles. I said, yeah, you wouldn't want to drink from these. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely would do you in a hurry. So those, uh, it's it's quite a captivating picture, do you think? Yeah, I like it a lot, actually. It kind of draws the eye yeah. in. Yeah, it does. The, uh, my publisher in California, Bookstand Publishing, we uh, we looked at a number of book covers that we, we thought about doing. And the publisher, he said, you know, there's so many dark covers out there. You know, you look at all the Stephen King books and uh, all the other books, they're dark covers with crows on the front and cemetery gates. And he said, we want to get, let's do something different. And at the minute he saw the picture of the embalming bottles, he said, that's the cover. And he said, you know, you, you can't, you walk, you can't not walk by that and stop and look at it. And it, it is a good cover. So I was really pleased with it. It came out very nice. Yeah. And it almost gives you this um, kind of Wild West feel. Yeah, it does. <laughs> It's almost like Booty Hill, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> that picture I took in front of my garage uh, a couple of years ago. I just was fooling around one morning, and I was still working on the book at that time. And I I have a few funeral memorabilia pieces, but not a lot. I don't collect old funeral things, but I happen to have some of the old bottles. So I put them out on a board in front of my garage and I snapped a couple of pictures and voila, who who knew back then it would be a book cover. But <laughs> that's how it happened. Speaking of embalming fluids, when you embalm a person, you're essentially, you're taking out their blood and replacing it with the fluids. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. See, oh. the, the circulatory system, the circulatory and lymph system 
in the body uh, is is arteries and veins. It's arteries with fresh blood and venous blood is blood going back through the heart. And uh, it's a circulatory system. So when you're embalming a body, you're actually pushing fluid into the arterial system. Okay. And that's pushing fluid through the arteries into the venous system. And the venous system is returning the blood back out of the body. So it's it's a continuous circular system where you're pushing fluid in to push to remove as much blood as possible. And you and embalming does not get it all out. The average average body has about five and a half quarts of blood. And uh a good embalming you, you might get maybe two thirds or three quarters of that, but it's impossible to retrieve all the blood during embalming. Okay. And are there different, I don't know, shades you can add to Yes, people? there are. Yes. Really? Years ago, years ago, those fluids that you saw on the front of the book, yeah. they made like one or two embalming fluids, and you pretty much use the same fluid on every case. And in the last few years, um, embalming chemical companies uh, came up with a number of fluids, and most funeral directors have at their at their ability now to uh, to pick from maybe 10 or 12 or 15 different embalming fluids today. Hmm. And um, they would pick a fluid to match the uh, the cause of death. Uh, if, if the person was elderly, if they had a lot of fluid, they had to try to get the fluid off of a person. If they were obese, they'd use a different kind of fluid. If a, if a person worked outdoors and they had a, a dark complexion like a farmer, mm-hmm. there's a fluid that's made out there pretty much for people that work out of doors. Um, and most of the fluids today that funeral homes use have have dyes in them, so they don't have to use a lot of makeup. Um, I, I've been to a number of funeral homes over the years, and I hated people with a lot of makeup. It just That's one of the worst parts about our businesses is that people would have bad experiences. They'd say, oh, they look like a clown. They had too much makeup, oh. you know. Years ago, everybody used a lot of makeup, and that's not the case anymore because a good embalmer today will put the the person's color inside the body. So it's, it's, there's not a lot of need for a lot of makeup today with a, with a good embalming. That's so interesting. Uh, how long does an embalmed body last, generally? For could be for decades, Greg. Really? Yes, decades. Interesting story. Ask about uh, how long embalmed bodies last. Um, I have been involved with at least a couple of exhumations where a person's been dug up, if you will, after being buried for a number of years for one reason or another, to move a casket to another area, to another vault, etc., I've had the opportunity to 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 view at least a couple of people who have been embalmed for a number of years, and they were fine. They were very very well preserved, very recognizable. Um, I have read where funeral homes that have disinterred bodies that have been buried for even decades have had really good success in the, in viewing a body. Um, wow. If you remember. Not too long ago, you remember the story of um, the crash of Buddy Holly mm-hmm. in 1959, along with Richie Valens and the Big Bopper. Sure. 
Well, about that hasn't been that long. I'd have to in the last three or four years. J.P. Richardson. He was the son of the Big Bopper, who was also J.P. Richardson Sr. Right. They were killed on plane crash in 1959, the day the music died. That's right. And uh, Buddy Holly, uh, they were all killed instantly and buried a few days later in their respective states. And uh, well, J.P. Richardson's son uh, had never seen his father. He was just a few months old when his father was killed. Okay. Soon after the crash of Buddy Holly's airplane, uh, well, they were within a few weeks or a few months after the crash. There was a pistol found at the crash site, and rumor got around that maybe something had happened on that airplane that involved that pistol. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, it's been written about, and you can go on online and find that story yet today. And uh, anyway, long story short, J.P. Richardson said. I want to exhume my father. I want to see my father. I want my father re-autopsied. I want to know if he was actually killed in that plane crash with Buddy Holly and um, Richie Valens and the and the pilot Roger Peterson, or was that was there a pistol involved? Did something happen on that airplane? So, long story short, he had a court get an exhumation order. J.P. Richardson, the big bopper, was exhumed. They took him to the funeral home. Uh, he hired an, an, a pathologist to do an autopsy. You can find this online as well. Um, they opened the casket that had been buried for almost almost 50 years, and uh, his father was very recognizable. Wow, yeah, I just looked it up. It was in 2007. Yeah. So uh, whoever the funeral home that did the embalming of J.P. Richardson did an exceptional job because uh, the preservation was there. And uh, so J.P. Richardson was, as an adult, able to see his father for the first time. That's so weird to it, think about. It is, isn't it? Yeah, I, and I, if I try to put myself in that situation, I don't know that I would have, if that would have been for me, I, if, if I'd want to do that or not. But I'm sure someone actually eyeballed the body, you know, before, his son saw him say, yeah, this is something you want to see or you don't want to see, but he was able to, to see his dad. And um, so they put him in a new casket and a new burial vault and uh, and reburied him. And But there was nothing involved with a the pistol. There, his, his injuries were all trauma, um, mass trauma from the uh, crash itself. And there was no indication that there was never a bullet found or anything like that. So, oh, okay. Oh, but it, it makes for it makes for a good story. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. That's that's. Kind of I think crazy. there's been a book written about that. Uh, I think there've been a couple of books written about uh, about Buddy Holly's flight that day in February of 1959. Interesting story. But yeah, bodies will remain uh, intact for many, many, many years if they're kept dry. Uh, that's the secret. If they go into a grave that's wet or go into a casket that gets wet, uh, water will really speed up the decomposition process. So most people want to be buried in a, in a good casket, in a, in a good concrete vault uh, that will keep the body dry. And if, and if the embalming's done well and the body's kept dry, it could go on for decades, decades. So uh, when you're picking out a casket, something to look for, I guess, would be watertight. 
Yeah, and and most people over the years have asked about that. I I tell them to, um, I'd be more concerned about the outer container, the the burial vault. The the casket secondarily, because the the vault around the casket is the first line of protection. And most vaults are are concrete, Uh Um, but they do also make a steel burial vault. But uh, personally, concrete is what a majority of people buy. And it has a gasketed sealer around the top. And um, once they're in the ground, they're going to be there for a long, long time. Hopefully so. Yeah, that'd be weird if they weren't. Have you ever been involved in any famous deaths? Not not my, not in my own business, no. Um, I've had a couple of interesting uh, recovery situations. I was involved with the uh, – there's a chapter in the book about each of these. Uh, I was involved with the recovery at, after 9-11 in New York City. Um, wow. was down there for uh, 10 or 12 days, uh, worked on Staten Island, uh, helping to recover remains and personal effects after the towers were were felled and, uh, in, in Manhattan. And uh, a few years later, uh, 2005, I was involved with uh, recovery work after Katrina in wow. uh, Gulfport, Mississippi. So it was both interesting deployments being involved there, uh, but never had any famous uh, opportunity. To, well, I lived in in rural New York State. We had a lot of <laughs> famous, a few infamous people, but no famous <laughs> people. <laughs> it, it's been an interesting, uh, interesting career, I guess. The word's interesting. Yeah, definitely interesting. How do you prepare for a trip to a disaster like 9-11 or Katrina? Uh, the, um, the, the, the New York City uh, recovery was probably the most mentally challenging. Um, yeah. uh, I was working with a sheriff's office at that time, uh, not too far from my funeral home, and uh, there were six of us that were deployed from the sheriff's office and because I had funeral credentials it was important that I was on that detail and uh, walking into Manhattan um, the night we arrived and we were there about 10 days after the towers fell Okay. and they were still doing recovery work naturally at that point yeah. and um, it, it was uh, breathtaking to walk into Manhattan and to walk into those towers. We arrived at night and walked down Battery Park and, and get there in the in the rain, and there's 18 stories of rubble there, and they're still pulling out, you know, firemen who've been killed. And uh, that was uh, a very humbling experience, probably the most humbling of anything I've ever been involved with. It's just a massive, massive uh amount of work for responders down there who who did the work and uh it just um it, it was it was breathtaking it really was everything that happened in Manhattan they they trucked everything across the river to Staten Island and everything went to Staten Island to a place called Fresh Kill what an awful name that's horrible Fresh Kill Landfill is the name of it. It's now closed, but that's where they took everything from the towers, from 
fire trucks to police cars that were destroyed to everything. They moved everything over there to sort, and there were just piles and piles and piles of rubble as high as you could see at Staten Island. And we would just, they would spread these out on the size of a football field with payloaders, and then we would be on one side, and we would start going from right to left and, and walk through these remains of computer desks and cinder blocks and glass and personal effects. And here I am on hands and knees going through debris fields looking for uh, remains and for personal effects. And that was... Uh, it, it still takes my breath away to think about it. You know, it was, um, it was an interesting deployment, and uh, that was a, a really mentally challenging to do that. Finding airplane airplane pieces that you knew ten days before that there were people on yeah. this airplane. You know, it's like wow. You know, it's like uh, it, it, it did take your breath away, and I still do think about that from time to time. It's been what fourteen years this fall. Yeah. And um, it doesn't seem like that. It just seems like the other day that we were there. Um, that was an interesting deployment. Katrina, the same. Um, a huge loss of life at, at Katrina. Like 1,900 people lost their life down there. A lot of people were never found. Um, the, the time that we spent down there, that I was there actually probably about 10 days, we I think we recovered about 250 or 60 people uh, that we helped identify and uh, and get back to their families. Um, a lot of people were never found. I mean, that wall of water that came up through there from, from the hurricane um, just took a lot of people out to sea. Yeah. And we're never found. And that's the, that's the tragedy about it. And the same thing with 9-11 in New York. A lot of people, a lot of families never got anything back. You know, the people were just gone. And uh, that's hard when you when you say to a family, you know, we, you know your, your husband was on the 95th floor of Tower Number 2, but we, we can't find him and we don't find anything of him. And that's hard for a family, really hard. I would imagine. Yeah. So those were interesting deploys. And there's a chapter in the in the book about each one of those deployments. Before we wrap things up, let's let's turn things lighter and happier than yeah, nine eleven in Katrina. <laughs> that's that's deep and that's that's a dark time. So wow, I can't imagine being in, being in your shoes for that. Yeah, there are some uh, as I say, the book's got uh, some funny stories in it, and uh, will be a good chuckle for a lot of people when they do read the book. And uh, people can go on uh, actually to Amazon and actually. They have a feature now where you can call up a book and actually read through part of the book. Yeah, and that's a feature on Amazon. I think in Barnes and Noble both you can actually preview the book and read through the first chapter or two. Pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah, once you get one story in, I, I I think you'll want to buy the book. I read one of the stories and it was about uh, and people can read this also about the airport and and losing a bomb. <laughs> About the fellow that was, oh, you you read the story about the fellow that was lost at the airport. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> a good story. It was a funny one too. Yeah. So I think so people say, "Oh, you guys, the funeral business are way too serious." Well, not we are. I mean, when we have to be, we're serious about the work when we're doing it. But we're but we're human people, 
and and we have to laugh because if if you if you weren't able to laugh, uh, there would be a lot of funeral directors in mental wards <laughs> around the country. There really would be, you know. I would imagine, especially yeah. stories like that. Yeah. Um, all right. So we'll, we'll close this on uh, two questions from listeners that I have for you. And they'll be much lighter than nine eleven and Katrina. Yep. First is, what do you believe happens after death? My personal belief is that um, you, your soul, there is a soul in the body. Um, I'm not sure where that soul goes when you when you pass away. Um, whether it's heaven, whether it's a place between here and there, there there is a soul in a body. I'm a firm believer of that because after handling the number of deceased people I have handled in my life, you look at a person that's deceased, there's nothing in those eyes. It's empty. That person has gone on, has left the body. So I'm a firm believer there is something after life here. And I think that's all. I think we all have to be confident in that. No matter what your religious belief, we're not just here for a short time. There's something else waiting for us after we leave here. It's just it's just a tent we're in, and when the tent folded, we go on. That's my personal belief, Greg. I like that. I like that a lot. Do you have any you know creepy stories? Any any ghost stories that have happened to you? Uh, people have asked that. Uh, there's a story in the book about a lady who brought an urn in with some ashes that were seeping out of the side of it for no reason. And that's an interesting story. I, I, I've never had, of all the times, and I've lived in a funeral home a good portion of my adult life, and I've really never had anything in the funeral home other than a light or two that came on or off that probably wasn't an electrical circuit, <laughs> not someone deceased person, but I've never had a polar guy situation where we've had chairs stacked on top of each other. <laughs> Things like that, Greg, I've yeah. never had anything like that happen. Um, but so I've not really had any really strange things happen. I mean, uh, you have some strange coincidences with sure. families, uh, and things that happened over the years, but I've never, never seen a ghost in a funeral home. Uh, never seen a body move in a funeral home unless I was moving it. <laughs> that um, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I guess maybe I've had more humorous stories than I've had ghost stories. Nice, which are all, all in the book. The last thing someone sent me was in college they took a biology class where they had to dissect a cat. Yes. And she was telling me that now whenever she's at her friend's house petting a cat, sometimes she gets these weird flashbacks of <laughs> dissecting a cat. She kind of just has to put that cat down for a couple of minutes and then kind of <laughs> get back into normal and, and realize that was, you know, 10 years ago and, and, and it's nothing. Does anything like that ever happen to you? You've obviously dissected people. I, well, I have and not dissected them, but, you well, know, put them back together yeah. from an autopsy uh, and embalming and, uh, yeah, I, I've had strange coincidences over the years, as I say, have happened where I've met a family that I may, thought that I'd had there before, or a person would come in and say, you took care of a family member five years ago, do you remember so-and-so? And it's just circumstances sometimes are kind of strange. Sure. Uh, but other than that, nothing really unusual. It's all been pretty matter-of-fact. It's a very scientific business and, uh, and a very emotional business. And if you're high-strung, I say don't get in this business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. Um, well, thank you so much. The book, 
by Stanley Swan is once again Undertakings of an Undertaker, which is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And if you're not quite sure if you should buy it, read the first chapter, and I think you'll be you'll be pretty hooked after that. Uh, and Greg, I might add, if anybody, I love hearing from people. If yes. someone wants to drop me a note, just my email is Undertakings plural Undertakings at inbox inbox dot com. And I, I love to hear from people. And I respond to everybody that writes to me from around the country, and uh, so I encourage people to write to me, and uh, and I always write back. So once again, Amazon, people, go to Amazon, Undertakings of an Undertaker by Stanley Swan. Uh, Stanley, thank you so much for hanging out with us today and telling us some of your stories. Greg, it's been my sincere pleasure. I wish you all the luck in the world with your program. Thank you so much. And once again, do not forget to pick up his book, Undertakings of an Undertaker. True stories are being laid to rest. Of course, you can get that on Amazon just by going to IWantToKnowShow.com, clicking on the Amazon banner right there at the bottom of the homepage. That easy, one little extra step. And hey, after you click on it, you can even bookmark it and just click on that bookmark every time. So thanks again to Stanley Swan for joining the show some very interesting stories especially the 9-11 and the Hurricane Katrina that got really deep for a few seconds there some extremely interesting stories and I I can't wait to finish reading his book I hope you guys pick it up as well don't forget you can contact him undertakings at inbox.com if you'd like like he said he also loves hearing from people or you can also just email me I want to know pot at gmail.com I'll forward on the message no problem there Anyways, that's all I got for you guys today. Before I go, I'll tell you that the next podcast is going to have Bobby Thompson. She's not only an author, but also the spouse of a now female transgender. She went from being disgusted by the transformation to, uh, well, married to this person. It's quite an interesting story. I can't wait to share it with you guys. And speaking of sharing, if you have any topics uh, you'd like me to cover or any questions you have for upcoming guests, please send them to me. Of course, I want to know pod at gmail.com. You can also contact me on the website, I want to know show.com. Don't forget to give us a little thumbs up over on Facebook, facebook.com slash I want to know show. And follow us on Twitter at I want to know show. I think that's everything. So uh, thank you guys. Thanks to Stanley Swan one more time. Don't forget to get undertakings of an undertaker. And on that note, good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.